Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Amos or Amaziah. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July the 12th, 2015. It's hard to read the Gospel of Mark chapter 6 this week about the beheading of John the Baptist and not think about the grotesque images we see on television of ISIS. Whatever else ISIS is doing, it's pimping religion for a political cause. And that's exactly what this week's reading from Amos chapter 7 is about. Amos wrote 2,800 years ago, but his prophecy reads like today's newspaper. He lived under King Jeroboam II, who reigned for 41 years. Jeroboam's kingdom was characterized by territorial expansion, aggressive militarism, and unprecedented economic prosperity. Times were good, or so people thought. The people of the day interpreted their good fortune as God's favor. Amos says that the people were intensely and sincerely religious. But theirs was a privatized religion of personal benefit. In fact, Amos says they ignored the poor, the widow, the alien, and the orphan. Their form of religion degraded faith to culturally acceptable rituals. And making things worse, Israel's religious leaders sanctioned the political and economic status quo. It was these religious leaders who pimped religion for Jeroboam's empire. Enter Amos into this mix. Amos preached from the pessimistic and unpatriotic fringe. He was blue-collar rather than blue-blooded. He admits that he was neither a prophet nor even the son of a prophet in the professional sense of the term. Amos was a shepherd, a farmer, and a tender of fig trees. He was a small-town boy who grew up in Tekoa, about 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem and five miles south of Bethlehem. The cultured elites despised him as a redneck. Furthermore, he was an unwelcome outsider. Born in the southern kingdom of Judah, God called him to thunder a prophetic word to the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's what this rough-hewn prophet did. He opposed the political powers of his day and the religious stooges who supported them. With graphic details that make you wince, Amos describes how the rich crushed the poor, the affluent with their expensive lotions, elaborate music, and vacation homes with beds of inlaid ivory, sexual debauchery in which a man and his son abused the same woman, a corrupt legal system that sold justice to the highest bidder, predatory lenders who exploited vulnerable families, and, topping it all off, 
religious leaders who sanctioned it all. This week's reading from Amos chapter 7 relates one of the most dramatic encounters in, in all of Scripture. The text ought to come with warning labels like not recommended for children or side effects include severe political discomfort. To the priests who defended, legitimized, and justified Jeroboam's corrupt kingdom, Amos delivered an uncompromising word of warning. After Amaziah the priest informed Jeroboam that, Jer that Amos's preaching was unpatriotic and seditious, he tried to run him out of town. We read in Amos 7.12, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Amaziah then said something that reveals how completely he had identified religious faith with political power and economic gain. It ought to send a chill up the spine of every religious leader who ever thought about sucking up to political power. He told Amos, Don't prophesy any more at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. With those words in Amos 7.13, the religious justification of political empire is complete, and faith is reduced to patriotic cheerleading. But Amos wouldn't be bullied. He had a word of his own for every priest who pimped religion for empire. He says in 7.17, your wife will become a whore. Your kids will be violently murdered. Enemies will carve up the country. You will die far from home. And pagan Assyria will devour the corrupt political and economic empire that you have sanctioned in God's name. Our own Christian church has a checkered history in its relationship to the state. Some have followed Amaziah and traded religious legitimation for security, power, and privilege. One thinks of the German Christian movement that supported Nazi ideology, the Dutch Reformed Church that supported apartheid in South Africa, or Russian Orthodox priests who collaborated with the Soviet KGB. But there are also many inspirational examples who followed Amos. The Archbishop and Martyr of San Salvador, Oscar Romero, who died in 1980 from assassination, wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter that he could have sent to any number of our own American military or political leaders. He wrote, You say that you are a Christian. If you are really Christian, please stop sending military aid to the military here, because they use it only to kill my people. Romero is only one of many brave saints who chose Amos over Amaziah. Consider the confessing church in Germany that opposed Hitler, nationalism, and anti-Semitism. The black Pentecostal pastor Frank Chicane, who in 1985 gathered more than 150 clergy from 20 denominations to draft the Kairos document 
that protested South African apartheid. Father Gleb Yakunin, who insisted that the Russian Orthodox Church publicly repent of its ties to the Soviet regime. The culturally marginal and politically powerless Quakers who helped to abolish the British slave trade in the 19th century. In our own day, Morgan Svangarai, who sought divine intervention to end Robert Mugabe's three decades of thugocracy in Zimbabwe. Then there's the Jesuit priest, Daniel Berrigan, born in 1921, who did time in prison for his civil disobedience against American policies on racism, nuclear proliferation, and Vietnam. When asked by Nora Gallagher how many times he had been jailed for subverting Caesar because of Jesus, Berrigan responded, not enough. Dan's younger brother, Phil, also a Catholic priest, was arrested more than a hundred times and served a total of 11 years in prison for acting on his conviction that the good news of Jesus sometimes subverts the demands of the state. Said Phil, it's spelled out in scripture. It could not possibly be more clear. It's spelled out in the wisdom of Isaiah with its injunction to beat swords into plowshares and to learn war no more. To be acceptable to God, it says, we must forsake our weapons, destroy them, live as brothers and sisters in peace and love. Christians do not hate. Christians do not kill. Christians love their enemies. Yes, it's difficult, but I, knew the, but I do know that being a Christian is about nonviolence. It's about justice. It's about being outraged at the way we destroy each other. Or, in the language of the lectionary for this week, it's about choosing Amos over Amaziah. For books this week, I review a title by James Reston, Jr. The book is called Luther's Fortress, Martin Luther and His Reformation Under Siege, New York Basic Books, 2015. This book is 260 pages. Two years from this fall, more precisely, on October 31st, 2017, the town of Wittenberg will host the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church and thus kick-starting the Protestant Reformation. The town, which has a population of about 50,000 today, is expecting 400,000 tourists. The author James Reston is getting ahead of this curve with his marvelous biography of Luther written for a popular audience. Luther is a biographer's dream. He altered the course of a thousand years of Catholic history. He was a demagogue who was contemptuous of authority, a master of ridicule and insult, a jokester who reveled in scatological humor, a prodigious author 
and a champion of the common man who enjoyed a beer at the pub. And his faults were just as dramatic, especially his anti-Semitic diatribes. Reston's book focuses on the one year from April 1521 to March 1522 when Luther was hidden from his enemies in the Wartburg Castle, and more broadly on the five-year period from when he posted his 95 theses to when he published his German New Testament in September 1522. It was a dramatic time when Luther stood down both sacred and secular powers, rightly feared that he would be burned at the stake, and juggled threats to his burgeoning movement from within and from without. One highlight deserves special mention. During a ten-week stretch at Wartburg, Luther translated the Greek New Testament into vernacular German. The initial edition of 3,000 copies that appeared in September 1522 included 21 woodcuts by Lucas Cranach. It sold for half a golden, or the equivalent of a week's pay for a skilled carpenter. It quickly sold out. A second edition in December incorporated 574 corrections. In two years, there were 14 editions and almost 70 pirated versions. It would be 1534, 12 years later, when the complete Bible with both Testaments was published. When he died in 1546, there were 350 editions of Luther's Bible. Reston writes, he had become by far the most published writer in history. And I would add, he had also permanently altered all of Western history. A wonderful biography of Martin Luther for the 500th anniversary of 1517. It's called Luther's Fortress by James Reston. For movies this week, we have a guest movie review by David Werther. David Werther is actually the music review editor for Journey with Jesus. And this week, he reviews The Sea in Between, The Sights and Sounds of Maine Island, featuring Josh Garrels with Mason Jar Music. 2013. Christianity Today magazine named Josh Garrels' Love and War in the Sea in Between as the album of the year in 2011. Critic Jeremy Jones describes Garrels' lyric as prophetic, incisive, achingly human, and longingly spiritual. The film, The Sea in Between, documents a week of creation, generosity, and beauty on Maine Island in British Columbia. The Johnson family fell in love with Gerald's music and invited Josh, his wife, and two young children to spend a week of vacation on Maine Island and maybe do a show. The Johnsons then extended their hospitality and generosity farther. They also invited the music video production group Mason Jar and some musicians it selected to join them. 
All involved wanted to see what would happen if these artists collaborated in the beautiful setting of Maine Island. Well, what happened was more than a mixture of picture postcard beauty, technically proficient musicians, and time away. The result was joyful creation and community. In addition to performances, the sea in between gives Josh Garrels time to reflect on his life journey in Christian story. National Public Radio noted that Garrels is not simply a Jesus-per-minute Christian artist. Maybe that's one reason Blaine Johnson, who does not share Garrels' faith, felt comfortable inviting Josh's family to vacation with his. Thinking about Garrels' music and the way people respond to it brings to mind lines from a poem by George Herbert. A verse may find him who a sermon flies and turn delight into sacrifice. The title of the movie, The Sea in Between. And for poetry this week, in keeping with the theme from Amos, we've posted a poem by Clarabelle Allegria. Allegria was born in Nicaragua, in 1924. She moved to the United States in 1943. In 1985, she moved back to Nicaragua. Her work was featured in Bill Moyer's PBS series, The Language of Life. Her 40 books of poems, fiction, nonfiction, and children's stories have been translated into more than 10 language, languages. Once again, a poem by Clarabelle Allegria. The title is called From the Bridge. I never found the order I searched for, but always a sinister and well-planned disorder that increases in the hands of those who hold power, while the others who clamor for a more kindly world, a world with less hunger and more hopefulness, die of torture in the prisons. Don't come any closer. There's a stench of carrion surrounding me. Clarabelle Allegria from the Bridge. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 12th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.